Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. The pandemic has taken an enormous toll on the mental health of people around the world, with surveys showing increased symptoms of anxiety and depression since it began. And experts say the mental health consequences of the pandemic are likely to linger for years. Joining us on this episode is Stanford University professor Dr. Leah Weiss, who is the co-founder of both the Stanford Compassion Cultivation Program and Skylight, a venture-backed startup designed to address workplace mental health challenges. She's also the author of the new book, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us more about what you have observed in terms of the pandemic's impact on the mental health of the workforce. Yeah, there's so many ways that the pandemic has influenced us. I think one of the key statistics is the millions of women leaving the workforce in this country. We've also, as you already mentioned, seen a massive increase in um, depression and anxiety. I was just reading an article quantifying depression rates um, at this time as threefold what they were prior to the pandemic. Um, And I think that anxiety understandably kicks up with a lack of certainty and clarity about where we're headed. And of course, this new variant is, um, you know, is, is really impacting people and kind of changing how we're thinking about what can we rely on. Um, And then of course, the workforce Um, We are the same people, uh, whether we're in our roles at work or whether we are um, thinking of ourselves with respect to our families and communities. So what distracts us and weighs on us and pains us influences our our ability um, to stay on track and and connected to purpose with our work. When the pandemic started, I was so interested to see the impact that it would have on mental health. And I was thinking that at least initially, it must have had a positive impact because people weren't having to spend their time commuting or taking their kids to school. Did that play any role in people's mental health at the beginning? Were they happy at first and then they just got sick of it? Or how did you see it going? That's interesting. I mean, I think it's so much of this um, depends on our location, how we've experienced the pandemic, um, whether it's kept us uh, at home from from jobs that we used to commute to or whether we we're in roles where we could do them remotely. I do a lot of work in healthcare, So, of course, those folks weren't um, we're, we're still um, very much on site. Um, you know, I, I think the component of, of the level of stress that people experience also very much related to were you parenting? How worried were you about your children and their ability to continue their education? How much um, 
Were you experiencing loneliness, which was already a massive problem? It's it's one of the reasons that the uh, current Surgeon General wrote a book about human connection and loneliness, um, even prior to the pandemic. It's a critical need that we all have. So for people who live alone and were socially isolated, um, you know, their experience is very different than mine with my, the opposite of being isolated with my three young kids at home all the time. So different different types of stressors and, and needs. Um, but I agree with you. It's also helpful to kind of look at a reprioritization or taking travel or commuting out or rethinking with the great resignation now, how meaningful was work that we were willing to do before, but not willing to do anymore. Um, I think that it did raise some big picture questions in ways that have also been um, meaningful. Why should companies care about the overall mental health of their workforce? Why is it important to them or important to their bottom line? Yeah, there's so many different reasons. And if you're in an industry where you're competing for talent, um, which many people are, um, whether it's specialized talent or just getting people in to do roles, one of the things that you need to do is address what are the conditions that people are working in. If you want to keep talent over time, if you want to keep people, they need to feel that their work matters. Um, they need to feel like there's a trajectory of professional fulfillment and advancement. Um, and if you want them to be engaged and engagement, if you talk to anybody who works in human resources or even in a strategic um, level outside of human resources, you want to get your people to care and give their best thinking, their best work to their roles. Um, and when we are depressed or anxious or um, overwhelmed, we, from just a very fundamental biological perspective, are unable to do that. When someone is burned out, they're, they're, um, amygdala, the kind of old lizard brain um, that kicks us into fight or flight is enlarged. And we lose our access to our prefrontal cortex that helps us uh, analyze, make decisions, be strategic. Um, so if you are running a company and you want your people to be effective, you need to care about their mental health. If you want to retain your talent, if you want them to do the work they're there to do, you need to care about mental health. And um, if you want to take seriously that burnout was already a massive problem before the pandemic and 75% of people leave their job because of their relationship with a direct manager that's untenable. Um, taking these relationships, training your leaders, your managers to be able to manage in a humane, compassionate uh, way will have everything to do with sustainability of your workforce. How can a boss who is running a company that really thrived in person repair the damage that virtual conferencing did? Yeah, I think, you know, we need to understand that there is um, some work that we do when we're together of connecting with across people of trying to um, communicate in, in ways um, that help us understand 
um, how we fit in, what's meaningful, how other people are reading us, our work. And it's just much more tedious and exhausting to try to understand how we're being perceived, how our work is being perceived when we're communicating through um, through Zoom and whatnot. So what you want to do is you don't have the water cooler to have people convene around or the coffee break or the walking past each other or sitting together um, in various contexts. You need to recreate opportunities for people to connect at the human to human level. And we tend to be much more tactically oriented when we're working remotely because you start the meeting and it's jump all in to the business at hand. Um, but sometimes doing check-ins and understanding the weight of what people are holding emotionally actually helps a team to function better than if we try to be more efficient and we don't know that someone... Um, is, you know, distracted today because they have a loved one in a COVID unit. Um, we don't know what's happening with respect to childcare going away because of COVID exposures and other things. So a little bit more information at the human level helps us have insight as well as feel a sense of connection to our team. And that in itself can create a sense of purpose um, in the work that we lose um, so do those check-ins, ask people what's happening in their life. What's distracting you right now? What should I know about where you're at? Um, how can I support you asking for support that you need? And just even doing the kind of purpose or compassion oriented check-ins occasionally once a week. What was a, an example of something that was deeply meaningful to you in your work this week, or just even meaningful at all? It doesn't have to be deeply meaningful. Or when was a time you connected with a patient, a client, another coworker? Can you share a little bit about that? Taking the time to hear some of these stories make people makes people connect in a way that keeps them invested um, not and less likely than to call in sick when they're stressed or to quit um, on a dime because they feel a sense of loyalty and, and mission. We're glad you're part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners, and we're excited to tell you about Lomi, the world's first smart waste appliance. If you've struggled with composting and feel it's too much work or feel bad that you're not doing your part to help the environment, you have to check out Lomi. Lomi is a countertop electric composter, and I love it because I don't have a traditional garbage disposal. With Lomi, I don't need to take a lot of trips to the garbage with food waste. I just turn food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. And in just a minute, we'll tell you about a special offer from Lomi for our Nobody Told Me listeners. I love my Lomi because just about anything I put in the kitchen disposer can be put into the Lomi on my countertop and turned into dirt in four hours. There's no smell when it runs and it's really quiet. Since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage. Me too. And you know, I think it's cut down my kitchen garbage by at least a half. That means it's not going to landfills and producing methane. Instead, my Lomi turns my food waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants. It is so cool to see. 
I feel great knowing that I'm composting and creating soil instead of garbage. I have a basically limitless supply of dirt now for my garden, and Lomi is so easy to use. While you may want to get a Lomi for yourself, you may also want to get one for someone on your holiday list. This is a great gift that will help someone year-round. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash NTM and use the promo code NTM to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash NTM. And again, that's Lomi spelled L-O-M-I. Use promo code NTM at checkout. Food waste is gross. Lomi is your solution. With the holidays just around the corner, Lomi will make the perfect gift for someone on your shopping list. Just head to Lomi.com slash NTM and use the promo code NTM to get $50 off your Lomi. Do you think that happy bosses and happy workers spur each other on? Hmm. I like how you frame that. Um, I do. I think it's really difficult to manage other people. And I think what's also unfortunate is many people who get promoted into the management positions within organizations didn't get there because they were great at managing other people. They got there because they were really good at being an individual contributor. So they may not have had the opportunity to learn how to manage effectively and compassionately. And I think a big part of the breakdown is when you're on a team and you feel like your manager doesn't care or doesn't understand or they're doing things that undermine your ability to succeed, it's easy to kind of attribute malintent to think the person is trying, doesn't, is trying to harm you. And I've done thousands of interviews with managers, many of them in high stress positions who admittedly are not doing as well as they would like to. And I've never once walked away from one of those conversations thinking, oh, this person wants to harm other people. It's they feel overwhelmed, they feel ill-equipped, they feel under-resourced to themselves, but then they can get into a spiral of stress and showing up in a way that contributes to um, to problematic interactions and the whole spiral goes downwards. And the opposite, if um, if they can have some of the kinds of training that you would get if you went to a top management program, like the kind I've been teaching in for the last decade at Stanford Business School, the the most famous uh, way of learning and course, if you ask CEOs who have been wildly successful, nine out of 10 will say it's about interpersonal dynamics and mindfulness. And it's, it's about these people skills. But for someone who was really good at their job and got um, and got promoted to be a manager, but never learned how to do that, it, it's almost unfair for us to expect that of them, which is why I think we, we need to look at mental health at a team level. We need to look at um, training and accountability and metrics at the team level so that we can support managers to support their team, because otherwise you're going to get what we have now, which is like environments, um, all over the place that are inhumane and people cannot function in them and blaming the individuals and giving them another app to like 
go use for meditation or do yoga with is never going to solve the problem if you're not learning how to help the manager learn how to actually manage towards team health. How can we look to AI and machine learning for solutions? Yeah, that's a... (laughs) So that's an interesting part of what we are working on. Um, You know, in general, there is a lot of really compelling approaches out there now to understanding um, what's happening with respect to mental health um, through technology, through things like voice and so forth, Um, and, and then applying these in the team health and organizational context, I think is, is really the frontier. And um, that's what I'm really excited about. And our advisors at Skylight are, you know, all people who are kind of world authorities in this work um, that we're trying to now bring into the workplace so that teams can benefit from them and we can support each other by better understanding what's happening Um, While, of course, we need to be really thoughtful about things like security and confidentiality, um, but I think this is the real frontier of applied mental health and the place where we spend our most time, which is work. How important are things like structured rest and recuperation to a person's mental health and to that of their entire team at work? Yeah, structured rest is one of the four pillars of team health. And it it really, if you look at the foundations as um, self-awareness, kind of emotional intelligence, community, connectedness, psychological safety, the other two elements are structured rest and autonomy. And, And what we mean by structured rest, you know, basically, if you look at an example of an elite athlete, professional athletes don't train equally vigorously across the entire year, right? There's a season where there's preseason and they're getting, you know, back in shape in certain ways or pushing on lifting and and cardiovascular work and drilling. And then there's a season where they're playing the sport more. And then there's got to be periods of time when there's rest. Or if you look at the military, there's pre-deployment, deployment, and after you deploy, and we don't, when we don't Uh, have enough people to keep that rhythm up, we see all kinds of mental health um, challenges proliferate. The same is true at NASA. I've done a lot of um, interesting work in the context of NASA, human performance in outer space, very much you need these rhythms of push and then rest. But we don't tend to build these into our organizational uh, approaches. So the way I talk to our clients about it is when you have deadlines and you have sprints, which you will have, and some of them will be quite vigorous, it's not structured rest doesn't mean you don't have these pushes, but it does mean that you're thoughtful about giving your people a time to um, to to not always be at 120%. Maybe they go down to 80% for a minute and then go back to 100 instead of structuring the work that it's always untenable because workforces right now, the average person is doing 1.3 people's jobs. There's more work than you can ever keep up with. And then you add a sprint on top of that. And no wonder we have people collapsing and quitting and the great resignation and the big burnouts. Um, So let's think like we're elite athletes and try to structure our pushes alongside sustainability. In the past, workaholics were seen as 
people who are really successful and we look to them for inspiration for how we would act in the workplace. But you say that we need to reframe how we view them. How do we do that? Absolutely. I think this is one of the really important takeaways from organizational behavior research that workaholism is counterproductive. It it actually, when you work around the clock, there's diminishing returns quite quickly, especially if you're trying to do um, thoughtful work or make decisions or use your, your um, talent, your brain, your creativity. Um, and I think workaholics can set the cultural norm in many contexts. But what I increasingly see is in, in smart organizations, it's instead of valorizing the person who comes in and says, I worked all weekend or, or I worked all night, as though that's what we should all be aiming for. The question becomes, if you're doing that, you know, sometimes we all need to have a weekend where we do a little bit of work or a week where we're pushing more. But if that's consistently what your leadership is modeling, then the question goes back to those people. Well, why are you not able to set up a cadence of work that's reasonable and sustainable? And like, where is your prioritization? And so I hear increasingly people talking about deep work and doing thoughtful um, modulation of work and not imposing on other people with, um, you know, if you're checking your email in the middle of the night and you're in a leadership position, you're signaling to everyone else that that's the expectation. So what are you doing to communicate otherwise? And if that's really your best time to work, I've seen people do really interesting things in their email. Like I'm working on the weekend or I'm working late because this fits well for my, like my rhythm of work, but I do not have an expectation you respond to me now. (laughs) Um, and, And I think some of those signals, especially from leadership, Um, really become important. So the question becomes, how can you ruthlessly prioritize? How can you be the most effective? Not just how can you grind it out, um, you know, kind of like work grind porn style. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering how you think companies should react if an employee admits to suffering from anxiety or depression or stress. I think that you should that companies need to say, thank you for being honest, because that's the vast majority of us. Um, (laughs) And and like the best examples, I think in this has been one of those, you know, uh, quote unquote, silver linings of COVID. So many leaders are stepping up in the last year and a half and talking about their own challenges with mental health and normalizing. Um, And many of them are talking about long-term mental health challenges they've had and in how the pandemic has affected them. Others talking about more short-term kind of acute pandemic related. Um, But I very much come from the school of thought that we all experience all of these things, it's a, um, and we need to destigmatize and talk about how can we support each other. So if I'm super burned out right now, it doesn't make me any worse or better than somebody else on my team who is not. And then the question really becomes, how are we structuring things collaboratively? And how am I structuring things individually that I've ended up here? And how can we support each other? And and take the long view that if we keep working together, the time's going to come when you're probably going to need my hand out um, to pull you up and out. So I think for parents, this is often something we can kind of 
relate to that there's periods of time that are so intense with parenting and when we have loved ones, you know, that are sick, um, when there's additional stressors, when there's global pandemics, that actually it makes sense that we become anxious, that we become depressed. We are kind of what we've evolved to do as as human beings in interpreting our surroundings um, in, in suss out fear and suss out danger that that's adaptive to do. Um, and so when we are in these kind of great unknown transition periods, um, that instead of stigmatizing the person, it just really becomes what can we do at a team level, at an organizational level, and how can we support people and just talk about this as part of being human? found that people should have a relationship with their coworkers outside of the office, whether that be in real life or on social media, does that make them closer to them or does that, is that just kind of leading towards more burnout? I love that question. It's interesting because I remember I was early in the pandemic. A lot of people were talking about how they were getting so close with their team and kind of turning to them for psychological support. And then I remember a few months in a number of people were starting to say, I'm a little bit worried because this doesn't feel super sustainable to be like this in it. Um, you know, as, as, as the ongoing, uh, kind of emotional support system, I think everybody's kind of different, um, in, in some of the, the, how we need to think about it relates to how we use things like social media and our social lives in general. Uh, like if you're an extrovert who's super active on social media and that energizes you, then connecting with colleagues who are also there, you know, could be, um, could work for you and for other people who are more private and they really don't want, um, you know, others that they work with to have visibility into their lives outside of work. I think we should be really cautious. So I think a good kind of guiding principle is like, you know, in my company, I don't friend, I don't make, put in any request to link from the folks who work in my company. If they requested of me, um, I, you know, I, I try to like gauge my own comfort level, or I might redirect them to like, Hey, let's connect on LinkedIn where I put more of my professional stuff. You don't really want to see all my kid pictures and their like precocious quotes, do you? Um, but you know, I think we all kind of need our own, like, um, you don't really want to know that my like six-year-old dropped an F-bomb this weekend, do you? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, but I, I think it's an important question because when there's pressure, I think it is, it, it gets insidious. And I think that's, it's a critical point to raise and people need to be really thoughtful and recognize power dynamics in it. So if you, if someone reports to you and they, if you've requested access and visibility into their life outside of work, it, they may not feel comfortable declining that. And then they're left with like, okay, great. Do I like block your viewing of me and what I post and have to remember that you just, we don't want to cause that complexity. Life's hard enough. A lot of people are working two or three jobs these days just to pay the rent. It's a gig economy for a lot of people. What kind of an impact is that having on mental health? Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, have also been in that experience for much of my career too, or be doing multiple roles alongside each other. And one of the most helpful kind of psychological frameworks that helped me understand the cost of that 
um, is in the form of what I'm about to say. So we have to be aware that context switching, so moving in and out of different environments, takes energy, takes thought, takes time. Um, so when we're stacking up different roles next to each other, it's important to remember that that the invisible work of the context switching is something we have to account for so that we can pick a kind of pattern and pathway that's sustainable for us. Because I remember like for myself, you know, early out of, out of my doctoral program, talking to a mentor about, you know, I don't understand why I'm so exhausted. I'm just doing this research project. I'm running that program and doing this other thing. And, you know, on paper, I've mapped it out and, and there's enough hours in the week that I should be able to do it. It's not ideal, but I live in Palo Alto and you got to pay the bills and, right. you know, all that. And, and the mentor said to me this whole point around context switching and to be kind to myself and understand that that is very real work. So when I would go into a different environment, the R&D company, it's, it's not just a different set of work, but it's what's happening interpersonally with all these people and kind of catching up and then, you know, trying to be attuned to where you fit in, what's the vibe um, and all of that. But when we need to do the multiple, I think just building as much as you can thoughtful transition time. Um, and I think there are hacks in that sense, like how we stack different kinds of work really can make a difference. Um, and if we can, you know, not expect ourselves to focus in times of day that we might be okay getting through a conversation or a meeting kind of thing, but we're not going to be able to write or do detail oriented work, um, as much as we can kind of be, be thoughtful of ourselves. Right. <laughs> with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Dr. Weiss, as you know, our show is called nobody told me. So at the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So we know you have a lot of tips about <laughs> mental health in the workplace, but what's the one thing that you would like to pass on to our audience about mental health in the workplace? Yeah, I think, you know, you've probably heard me at this point, your listeners have, have, have heard me say over and over this word purpose and this other word compassion. I think that, you know, in terms of cultivating our own happiness, our own, um, um, ability to um, be healthy in our lives that that these are kind of the um, the the secret sauce of of health and well-being that if we it doesn't mean every moment of every day we're gonna feel deeply connected to our purpose but it, every day if we do something that we see matters to the world to ourselves, that goes a really long way. And that, and I think the other corollary to that is around compassion connections that we are social creatures. And so finding and prioritizing um, meaningful connection, what that looks like for us um, is, is really critical again, for our health, happiness, however you want to frame that. And doctor, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet and find out more about your work and your book? Um, LinkedIn is a good one. Um, if, if you find me on a, 
on some of the other platforms, uh, you might see more of my precocious kids. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yes, if you're if you're ready for some of that, um, I'd love to hang out with you there. Link, LinkedIn is a really good one. And then um, if you're curious about the team health work, I've been talking about um, skylight.com and in my personal website, uh, Leah Weiss PhD, we can link to in your show notes as well. Okay. And skylight.com is spelled S-K-Y-L-Y-T-E. Exactly. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really interesting. We very much appreciate your wisdom. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Stay well, both of you. You too. (laughs) Again, our thanks to Dr. Leah Weiss, whose book is called How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.